0: Thank you, Bob. Hey, everybody. Hello. Well, at least, uh, I think two people are awake so far. It must be the heat. Let's try it again. Hey, everybody. Yeah. Now, why are you here tonight, and why are you watching this online? If you're watching it, I mean, hopefully, you came to sing and to worship and to ascribe praise and honor and glory to our great God. Right? That's amazing. We get the privilege of doing that together. But hopefully you also came to make friends. So I want you to think about that for just a minute. So who do you love in this building right now? And who loves you? And who is strengthening you in this church? And who are you strengthening? Who is discipling you? Who is helping you become more like Jesus... And who are you helping to become more like Jesus? Now, let me kind of put a little bit of a a disclaimer on that, if that's what I can call it. That's not really possible if you don't come to church for the purpose of investing in people and being invested in by people. So if you're like some of my friends, and I have friends that kind of do the church hop. They never really settle down once they get... A little close with people, that's the trigger for them to leave and go find another church. They don't really want to get a lot of deep relationships. That's kind of a shame if you're a Christian, because you're going to be with those people for eternity, likely. I'd like to see you do that in heaven. That's going to be kind of funny. But my point is, let's really be a church. And what we're going to find out in just a few minutes in this Acts series, as we continue, and what Bob just read is how a church, now this is amazing, how a church full of Christians that have been a Christian for less than one year function to meet a need 300 miles away. Did you catch all that? We're going to see how a Christian filled with believers of less than one year old in Christ, mobilized to meet a need in a church, I'm going to actually put a little more on this, 300 miles away that has not yet even occurred. The need has not yet even occurred. This is amazing. This is an amazing church. And we want to be like this church. So I hope you have your Bibles open. Here we go. Acts chapter 11, verse 27. It's going to take me a little while, I guess as is normal, to actually get to the points of this message. But, I mean, come on. You do want the background, right? You want the skeletal system with all of the tendons and ligaments and the skin and Hair. You want the full picture, right? So that's why I give you a lot of the background so that you can understand really what was going on. So we've got here in Acts chapter 11, the hand of the Lord. And the hand of the Lord is on the believers in a city called Antioch, and the church is exploding. Now listen, have you ever been in a church that's just exploding Not only numerically, our church went from 250 to about 450 in three months, way back in 2006 and 2007, right at the end of the year into the beginning of the next year. I mean, it was so full in our church. We only had the one campus up at March Street, and we literally had the center of the three sections of pews filled with people. I couldn't even tell you any of their names at that time. The Lord was just exploding. But have you ever been in a church that's not just exploding numerically? The hand of the Lord's on you. And people are sharing Jesus and they're witnessing of Jesus with their neighbors and their coworkers. And, oh my goodness, can you imagine this? Teenagers with their classmates and their bandmates and their teammates and college students that are absolutely on fire. You ever been in that kind of a church? I have down in Virginia, Lynchburg. Man, every week, I just could not wait to go to church because God was up to something. God was up to something. We want to be like that church here at Cornerstone as well. So here we go. We've got Barnabas. We've got Paul. And they are there in Antioch for a year. They are encouraging the young church. They're teaching them the basics of the Christian faith, and then they're discipling them into maturity. And during that year... Uh, here's where it gets good. A group comes to them from Jerusalem. And they are bearing news of something that's not yet happened. It's going to happen in the future. It's going to be a dire world event. Now, before we see what that news is and the response of this young church, let's get familiar a little bit with Antioch, right? Because you do want to know... If Luke, who wrote Acts, is mentioning by name the cities, well, there might be actually something important into it. It's the cradle of Christianity. In other words, it's the birthplace of Christianity, and it's the center of the Gospels spread to the Gentile people. Gentile people are non-Jewish people. Let me just make it super simple. This entire population on this planet, nearly 8 billion people right now, you're only either a Jew or a Gentile. Everybody is divided into those two demographics. You're either a Jewish person or a Gentile person. So we've got Antioch. It's located at the very southern, very central. You can see it on the map with that red star. At the very center part of modern-day Turkey, 12 miles northwest of the Syrian border. Today, the city is called Antakya. And it once belonged to Syria. It was annexed, added to the Roman Empire, 64 B.C. Soon became became the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire, 300 miles above Jerusalem. Now, you might be thinking right now, I mean, some of you, I know, no doubt are thinking this. Man, this sermon sounds like a history class. This is the most boring message I have ever heard in my life. Let's just take an honest poll. How many of you were thinking that? Be honest. How many of you are right now lying? (laughs) I did see a hand, by the way, of the most boring. I saw it up back there. Definitely not a believer. Let's pray for him. The reason I'm giving you the background. Here we go. Two reasons. Ready? Number one. First, to help you understand the soil that burst the Gentile church, Antioch. But second, and this is so important, I'm going to show you, I think you're going to see how similar Antioch was to modern America. I believe we today are similarly poised for the hand of the Lord to mightily work among lost people in this country. Do you believe that? Say amen if you believe that. That means by the way you just actually trapped yourself because if you believe that that means well if the hand of the Lord's going to work mightily in America he's going to do it through you. Woo. Now how many people believe the hand of the Lord is about to work mightily in America? Amen. All right. Amen. So to Antioch we go. It's a city that settled near 3 near the 355-mile-long Orontes River. By the way, for perspective, the Delaware River is 301 miles long. So this is a really big river. And it flows north. It actually goes north to eventually empty into the Mediterranean Sea. And cities of the modern world, just like today, took on special characteristics and became known for certain things. New York City, the city that never sleeps. Las Vegas, what happens there stays there, right? So cities take on characteristics. Well, the ancient cities did this. Do you realize that? The ancient cities did the same thing. Jerusalem, it was really known. For their constant rebellion, their volatile temperaments, their seething hatred for the Gentiles. Rome, which was the city, the capital city of the empire, was known for their political maneuvering, for power. Athens was the intellectual center of the world. And Antioch, our city, in this message, was known as three things. Number one, the cosmopolitan city. Which means it was ethnically diverse. This is amazing. 25,000 Jews lived in Antioch during this time. The city had a population of 500,000 people. And they had people from all over the world living there. It was a cosmopolitan city. Arabs, Greeks, Romans, Jews... So on. So, with all that ethnic diversity, now you probably know this, right? Comes the demand for products that each ethnic group wanted. So, not only was it a cosmopolitan city, it became not just a melting pot, but a commercial city. The wealth of the entire east flowed through Antioch on its way to Rome, making it chiefly a merchant city. It was just 16 and a half miles from the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, listen, this this city had theaters, it had bathhouses, forums, it even had a circus. It had all sorts of public buildings. Its main street has been archaeologically uncovered. It was four miles long, lined with magnificent mansions, only part of the homes for its 500,000 residents. So you've got all that diversity, you've got all that wealth that's available, and Antioch was not only uniquely tolerant of different people, it was an exceedingly corrupt city. Now, I've told you three C words to make it easy for you to remember. It's cosmopolitan, it's commercial, and man, was it corrupt. Five miles southwest of the city were the exceedingly beautiful groves called the Daphne, containing the sanctuary to the the god Apollo, and it was a site for nonstop religious immorality that was practiced around the clock. See, Antioch became so corrupt that the Roman poet Juvenal Juvenal wrote the waters of Syrian Orontes flowed into the Tiber, the river of Rome. In other words, what he's saying is this. If you know in your history how corrupt and immoral Rome was, what he said is that the city of Antioch fed it all of its debauchery. Man, is this area of Antioch poised for the gospel. In other words, if there is an ancient city that American can, America could really identify with, it's going to be Antioch. And here we go, verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. If you go out of Jerusalem, friends, don't be confused by this, even though Antioch is north. 300 miles. If you leave Jerusalem, you go down because Jerusalem's on a mountain. If you come to Jerusalem, you go up. So in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. Now, first of all, I'm going to ask a favor. Is there anybody here, any married couple here, planning on having a baby anytime in the next two years? Come on. Don't you remember? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the face of the earth. Well, if you do, come privately and talk to me because I want you to name your child boy or girl Agabus. Please, please do this. <laughs> come on, it will be so amazing. This guy rocked. He was awesome, he was a prophet. But you probably should know before you name your baby Agabus a little bit more. Rich and Serena, you guys are talking. Are you? Yes! Was that a yes? Oh, sorry. I got a little excited. There's three sets of leaders in the New Testament church. All right, so I want you to know this. There are apostles. Now, listen, you got to know this. The apostles' authority is over all of the churches, And then there's elders, number two, their authority was invested in the local churches. And then there are prophets, and prophets didn't belong to just one church. They actually went from church to church. They moved around, but their word, their messages were really scrutinized heavily, See, a prophet in the Bible either did one of two things. They either foretold, meaning that they declared and explained God's word. By the way, that's the bulk of prophecy in the Bible. It is foretelling, where you explain and declare God's word. Actually, not much different than what I'm doing for you right now. But the other function of a prophet in the Bible was to foretell tell meaning that you declare what's going to happen in the future agabus is doing the latter he is foretelling look at verse 28 he stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world and he said it occurred Luke did during the rule of Claudius who was the Roman emperor from AD 41 to 54 And during Claudius' rule, there were a lot of famines that went on, but particularly one of them filled with crop failings and flooding in the Nile, which provided, it was a breadbasket of the entire region. There was one in A.D. 46 so great that it affected the world. And what Luke means by that is either the entire human population that was known and discovered or... The entire Roman Empire, and almost always it means that one. This is the Roman Empire that this famine affects. Now, I did warn you on this because I'm a very sensitive and gracious pastor. That was all introduction. <laughs> and I'm almost half done. That was all introduction. Now I've got three points for you, all right? How will this young church respond to this foretelling of a famine that's going to impact the entire Roman Empire. I'm going to give you three points. Ready? Here we go. Number one, Christ-centered churches give generously. Now, let me even first exposit that title of that point. You do know, right, friends, that not every church you go to is Christ-centered. If that church is not preaching the word of God, trust me, it is not Christ-centered. If that church, which a lot of them now in mainline churches are doing, is preaching more secular philosophy than it is the word of God, that's not a Christ-centered Church. So when you choose your church, whether it's here or you move and you go anywhere else, listen, look for a Christ-centered church where the gospel is preached because the gospel makes it to the heart. And that's how transformation occurs. So Christ-centered churches give generously. Look at verse 29 with me. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to to the brothers living in Judea. Now, did you notice the word disciples? That means learner. That is the best definition for disciples, what it means. And I wanna caution you don't believe that the bad teaching, I don't know if I would put this in false teaching, I don't think so, but it is bad teaching. That really raged in the 90s and the early 2000s that there are two types of Christians. There are believers and there are disciples. There are believers and there are disciples. That is bad teaching, friends, and I would encourage you, do not believe it. There is one type of believer, and every believer is a disciple of Christ. And a disciple maker is a believer who is helping others learn to become like Jesus. And one of the many characteristics of Jesus was compassion in action called mercy. You want to know something really cool? I learned this maybe, I think maybe a decade ago. So Kenneth Wiest, who is a very famous scholar and very good at Greek definitions, he explained it to me this way in his book. He said this, God's grace, Now you got to hear this, God's grace is his loving power to take away our sin. But his mercy is his loving power to deal with the consequences that our sins have caused. So all through the Bible, you read about God's grace, it's targeting sin. And when you read about God's mercy, by the way, which is new every morning, Lamentations 3, then you're seeing God targeting the consequences, the damage, the fallout that our sins and others' sins create in our lives. So a disciple maker is helping people live out Their life like Jesus, and one of the greatest characteristics of Jesus was his compassion, and compassion is mercy in action. Now listen, if you're not writing this down, that's fine, but at least put it in your mind and anchor it there. Compassion is mercy in action. See, the Antioch believers met the need of the church in Jerusalem. And by the way, you've got to see this. The famine had not even yet occurred. And I'll tell you why they met it. Because Barnabas and Paul were discipling them to be like Jesus. Do you see why every single Christian needs to be discipled? Every Christian needs someone to come alongside them. Teach them to love like Jesus with mercy. And one of the greatest displays of mercy, well we're about to see it. It is sacrificial generosity. Now I'm going to ask you a question before I really unpack this. Now just evaluate yourself. And by the way, don't raise your hand. This is rhetorical, meaning you just think about it. How many of you don't raise your hand. How many of you would Characterize yourself as sacrificially generous. Again, let me ask how many of you would characterize yourself as sacrificially generous? Now, I'm going to tell you how you can evaluate that. Super simple, and the Bible uses a phrase called open handed. And if you're a person whose hand is open and in that hand is your income, your home, your clothes, your cars, your health, your gifts, your spiritual gifts, your talents, your skills, and your hand stays open, then you're sacrificially generous. But I'm going to tell you what the bulk of people do, even in the church. Their hands close possessively around all of those that I just said. Believing the deception that you are the author of them, you are the originator of them, you are the reason you have these things, therefore you rightfully own them. And the Bible will speak completely opposite to that. And the aim of the gospel, friends, it's to unlock your heart so that you reopen your hand. And God will say, those are all of mine. They all belong to me. It's my initials on all of it. You might think you worked for 40 years and that IRA account is yours. That's really mine because I gave you the ability and I gave you the job for 40 years. I own it all. Therefore, now watch. I have the right to take some of this and put it over here where there's a need. And you know what you and I tend to do when God starts tampering with what's in our hand? We begin to close our fist. See, that's what the Bible means by close fistedness And the gospel pries the fingers open. And discipleship is the means to keep the hand open generous, and sacrificial. C.S. Lewis, I I really like C.S. Lewis and most of what he writes. He said this, I do not believe one can settle on how much he ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Now, I asked you a minute ago, and by the way, I'm not going to be asking you to go put more money in the offering, okay? So don't worry, you can just relax. I know some of you are used to pastors that are constantly trying to get more money from you. That's not this church. I want God to do the work that he wants to do in your heart through the power of the gospel. So, I asked you a little bit ago, how many of you are sacrificially generous? Now that I've defined it a little bit, now that you read C.S. Lewis's quote, now that I've explained open-handedness and closed-fistedness, how do you answer the question? Now, interestingly, I know people in our church who have told me that they don't give to God. They don't give to any church, not even our church, even though they come here. They don't give. You know why they told me they don't give? This is blew my mind. Because he took a salary about 40000 less than what he knew his earning income was, and he counted that as his tithe. Wow. Man, I sat with him session after session, pouring through the word of God to no avail. It is powerful to close your hand. There is a close-handed trajectory in all of our hearts, and the gospel wants to open it back up. Well, that statement, sacrificial generosity, defined the disciples and the church in Antioch. Look what it says. Let's go back to the word. Everyone gave according to his ability. That means simply, That those believers who had a lot gave a lot, and those who had just a little gave less. So they gave according to their ability, yet they all determined to give. Meaning, in the Greek of that word, they make up their minds. They made up their minds resolutely to do so. And it often describes the generosity of a lot of you in this church. I mean, a lot of you are just unbelievably generous. So let me encourage you for just a little bit whenever we place a financial need before you from one of our ministry partners like bright hopes baby bottles which are back there y'all fill them up you bring you stuff money in there and and coins and and checks, and you're bringing them back, the RHM bike tour that's coming up, a lot of you are already giving pretty heavily to that, that and Christmas gift tree that we do, you guys are plucking those things off the tree, we've run out of them before, we get people upset, I didn't make it to the tree in time, well we'll try to find other ways for you to give, that's the nature of a lot of you in this church, our Thanksgiving outreach, when we serve 30 or 40 families, our Riverside ministry on Mondays, When we're serving 75 to 125 people, and so many people are helping. Gospel-produced generosity is one of the clearest ways that you will ever live like Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Point number two, Christ-centered churches give humbly. Look at verse 29. To the brothers living in Judea. Now, I want you to hear this because I think this is true, at least to my learning. As far as I know, this is the first time in history. Yes, I know that's a bold statement, but I don't know an exception. It's the first time in history that one race of people, Gentiles, collected monies to give to another race of people. I don't know of any other recorded instances of this in all of human history. We have a Gentile church giving generously to a Jewish church. But did you know that in every instance of church giving in the Bible, it was always directed to believers? Did you know that? This is the transforming power of the gospel in, our, in the community of believers. The average person in Jerusalem was poor. They did not have the access to wealth like Antioch did. Why did they give you all of that really boring information about Antioch? Because you needed to know that it was a wealthy city unlike Jerusalem. That was a poor city. But there was no us first Gentile before Jew attitude among these young believers. They hear of a devastating famine that's going to be coming. Listen, wouldn't you think the church would begin stockpiling their savings immediately, even justifying that from Joseph's example in Genesis 41? But humility moves the church to think of others more than self, even at the expense of of comfort. Here's what Paul said in Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I mean, it's really amazing when churches partner with churches. I'm going to give you some information about Cornerstone. Some of you didn't know this, I don't think. Did you know that we have sent our worship teams to other local churches in the area that lack musicians? In fact, we're talking about it right now, seeing if we could do that some more. Did you know that we've actually financially helped thousands of dollars worth of needs get met in local churches around us that are preaching the gospel? Listen, I'm not bragging about Cornerstone. I'm telling you this because this is your money. Every single penny we ever give away is coming from our giving to this church. We don't have another means of giving. Were you aware that we partnered with Truth For Women? Truth For Women started in this church with Sally Hall. Did you know that we gave Truth For Women, over a decade ago, $10,000 to start up that ministry. Do you know that we have invested over 900000 yes, that's the number, in our Restoring Hope ministry in Dungu, Democratic Republic of the Congo? In fact, if you want to read their latest report on our website, It's pretty exciting what's happening over there. And if you want to support the upcoming yard sales that RHM is doing coming up in June, please do. Did you know that we've injected almost $400,000 right next door into the counseling center? What we see in this church at Antioch is what we've been doing through your generous giving for over a decade. The kingdom of God has no solo churches. We partner with each other. Because Christ-centered churches give generously, they partner meaningfully, but they do one more thing, and it's point number three, and I'm almost done. Christ-centered churches give trustingly. They give generously, they partner meaningfully, and they give trustingly. One of the most difficult issues when it comes to giving in the church is really trusting the leadership. Man, I, I really understand that. I get that. With all the stories of mishandling church monies and lavish lifestyles of some pastors, it's understandable why mistrust can't exist. you know I haven't eaten a full meal in four months? I've lost 80... No, I'm lying. None of that's true. See, that's how mistrust happens. I should eat less, that's for sure. Do you know what happens here? And I want you to know, because a lot of you are now giving online, and by the way, can I just make a plug for bank giving because there's no percentage that's taken out. That's how Denise and I give. There's no percentage taken out. If you give, if you give through online... Um, giving, bill pay, or whatever it's called, you're going to get a 3%, I think it is, or 2% or 3% taken out. So that's actually reducing your giving. So if you want to do it that way, great. But if you want to give through your bank, that's a whole lot easier to do. But a lot of you still give to the box back there. Well, I want to tell you how we handle that. Do you know that no staff member ever, and I mean ever, handles the money? Never. And there is never a time that a single board member handles the giving. All of the counting during the week is done in teams. And we see here in Acts 11, while our deacons make recommendations, listen, the elders oversee the stewardship of all of your giving. Do you know that? Trust is critical. So look at verse 30. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas... And Saul. This was not an inconsiderable sum of money. There's a lot of money. And they trusted it to Barnabas and Saul, who transported it to Jerusalem and then gave it to the elders to get ready to steward it faithfully when the famine hits. And one of the misunderstandings in church leadership is that the elders handle the spiritual stuff. And then they hand off all the responsibility to the deacons in the areas of finances and facilities. Well, I'm telling you biblically, when it comes to governing the finances of a church, elders are responsible to oversee the deacons who are making the recommendations for the stewardship of the funds. So friends, trust your leadership. And if you ever have a concern, then approach the elders with your honest questions. But as I close, let me get you to really think. And I really am about maybe a minute and a half or two minutes from being done. So you can really think. Put all your effort into thinking now. All right? I'm going to ask you some questions. We've just learned from the example of this church of Antioch. So did you hear me tell you that this church, literally, every believer in it was less than one year old in Christ? None of them are mature. Except for Paul and Barnabas who are discipling them. And they hear of a famine that's going to strike them as well as the entire Roman Empire. And they know the church of Jerusalem is poor and the people likely won't survive the famine. So they take an offering. Probably more than one. Everybody gives. Everybody determines what they give. They give according to what they can. And the money is taken to Jerusalem to help that poor church. And it moves us as I close to answer three questions. Are all of us giving generously as we are able? Are all of us giving generously as we are able? Now, if you want a little uh, help in understanding what that looks like, the Old Testament was built on a tithe. And some of you are thinking, yeah, that was 10% of their income. No, it wasn't. It was 23.5% of their income. That's what they had to give to the Lord. So I would tell you that while the New Testament does not talk about a tithe, here's what Jesus talks about in the New Testament. 100% of everything we possess belongs to God. So give as he directs and give sacrificially, generously. Secondly, is our church, our church, giving humbly? Are we helping other churches who are in need? And third and final, are we giving to this church trustingly? If you ever worry, please hear my heart and take me up on this. If you ever worry about where your money goes, what it's being used for, or why we made a decision that we're making, then simply come and ask us. Because this is honestly, sacrificial generosity is one of my favorite subjects to talk about with anybody. Because my life was changed when God unfurled my fingers. But I'm going to tell you, my flesh wants to keep doing this, and God's gospel keeps doing this. And he's going to do that for you as well. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this church in Antioch. Lord, what an example for all of us, Lord, to be really stirred to sacrificial generosity, Lord. But to not only give generously, but to be a church that partners humbly and meaningfully with other churches and other ministries. And Lord, not only to give generously and to be a church that partners meaningfully, but Lord, to give trustingly. To know that the leadership is before the Lord as well. They are taking accountability and how they steward these monies and lord i pray that we would give whether it's to this church or that organization or that person that's a missionary lord let us give sacrificially generously lord help us to do that may your gospel open up our hands and may we have the joy of giving extravagantly knowing lord that this world this life here is so brief We've got all eternity. Lord, no one has given more than Jesus. He gave his life. That's the gospel truth. And he himself said that his father will outgive any of our giving. He will take care of us. We do not need to worry about our clothes. We don't need to worry about what we're going to eat. Doesn't our heavenly father know all that we need and does he not provide Lord, he provided for our salvation. He sent you to die on that cross. And Lord, through your death, those of us who have put our faith in you were made alive. And your spirit lives in our hearts, Lord, teaching us how to live like Jesus, how to be like Jesus, and to give, and to give well. Lord, let us learn that lesson, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.